electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Deirdre Boza in for Kelly Evans. And here's what is ahead on the show. Stocks giving up earlier gains following a job support that suggests a soft landing could be in the cards. But will this really change the Fed's tightening strategy? We will debate. Plus, Qualcomm and Meta teaming up on chips for the metaverse. Is this a win for both companies? We'll give you the details and how to play it. We are also getting some stock advice in three buys and a bail. The bail could surprise you. We'll get to that. But we begin with the markets, and Bob Pisani has the details for us. Bob, we just saw this kind of sharp move in the markets, reversing itself a little bit now, just the Dow. Now negative once again, all three markets on the flat line, let's call it. Yeah, we, uh, we lost about 40 points. Let's take a look at the board here. The Dow was... Uh Positive Dow Industrials was doing well for the day overall. But we lost about 300 points about 45 minutes ago, so tech's a little weaker. Now it's flat. Uh, S&P 500 dropped about 40 points. We were at 40.10 or so about 45 minutes ago, so that's about 40 points there. And the NASDAQ was also nicely positive on the day. It, too, went negative. There's not a lot of headlines out there. The volume is extraordinarily thin right now. The, the one headline that we did see a little while ago was this from Gazprom, the Nord Stream pipeline to remain shut. Now, that did cause natural gas prices to move up just a little bit. You see right there. Uh, that's been on a real tear, uh, 20, oh, 14 year highs for natural gas in the last couple of weeks that we have seen. It's off of that, but you see that small move up. It didn't move energy stocks that much, though. So this has been a very strong day for energy in general. They've been on a downtrend. Uh, oil and uh, oil stocks have been on a downtrend all this week. But this is one of the stronger days that we've seen in a long time for some of these names. So not being affected by that news, particularly Halliburton, Schlumberger, Marathon, even Exxon holding up pretty well. Uh, yields are down, but curiously, bank stocks are among the bigger uh, movers today uh, on the S&P 500. So Bank of America, Citigroup, Goldman, Comerica, these are all off their highs. Again, they were a little higher 45 minutes ago. Uh, but still up for the day. Elsewhere, uh, uh, moves in some of the uh, overall names like uh, Big Cap Tech, for example, they were all positive on the day uh, nicely. NVIDIA, AMD, Apple, and Microsoft have all now moved to the downside. So, Deirdre, the uh, jobs report was pretty much Goldilocks. Remember, yeah. we had uh, very nice moves down in some of the stocks, uh, in some of the, uh, uh, the, the reports, uh, the individual reports that were excellent. Uh, mm -hmm. but uh, you get moves, moves like this in the middle of the day on thin volume and it sort of take the sales out of the whole market. Deirdre? Yeah, and we're going to talk later about whether Goldilocks actually changes anything. But, Bob, as we look at today's market action, the Nasdaq is now down by nearly seven-tenths of one percent. Is this as simple as we're heading into the last holiday weekend of the summer? People are taking some risk off the table. Yeah, the, here's the, 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 the problem. You see generally, if you watch the two-year yield, the two-year is the inverse of growth stocks. When Generally, when two-year yields move up, growth stocks have a problem because that's a proxy for what the Fed is going to be doing with the Fed funds rate. This morning on the jobs report, 
the two-year yield moved to the downside, mm -hmm. and tech stocks all popped on the upside. That's a very good sign overall. That's what you would expect. But you see how the conviction is not terribly high. Just on this news on the gas prom news, which yeah. does not necessarily affect tech stocks at all, it simply affects sentiment mm -hmm. uh, around owning growth stocks. We just kind of moved to the downside. Well, Bob, you have a good long weekend yourself. Thank you for that. He mentioned it, the you jobs too, report, 315,000 jobs added in August. That is less than expected, while the unemployment rate climbed to 3.7 percent. That is slightly higher than forecast. Average hourly earnings increased by three-tenths. That's also below estimates. So is the market getting it right? Could we see a less aggressive Fed as a result? Joining me now are Stephen Rusciuto, chief U.S. economist at Mizuho Securities, and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Um, Steve Leisman, let's start with you. Does this change anything? I mean, Goldilocks kind of means not too soft, not too hard. Um, what would it actually take to get a Fed pivot? Um, there are some out there who say this increases the chance of a 50 basis point rate hike. Uh, overall, the, uh, the, the Fed funds futures market has come down a bit, holding on to most of the increase in yield or the expectation for a peak uh, funds rate that was hit after um, uh, Powell's speech a week ago Friday, or we go today. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think this is enough. I think that the, the, the Fed will like parts of this report or even most of this report, but I, th I don't think it's going to be convinced that it's out of the woods either from uh, uh, an, a wage-driven inflation or that the jobs market is running too hot or that infl inflation is going to come off the boil because of this report. I, they've said several times, I need to see several months worth of uh, better inflation data. So uh, I'm still sort of pointed toward a 75 on this uh, on this uh, jobs number today. And I, and I don't think that I would pretty much change from the, I don't know, 390 where the futures market is right now, um, uh, expectation for the uh, for the funds rate. Okay, so maybe in the near term, just that 25 basis point spread, that is the variable here. You're still assuming a 75 basis point cut. But in the longer term, uh, Steve, I wonder, and as markets were, you know, higher on the number, what would it take for an actual pivot, whether that mean a pause or even a cut somewhere down the road? Do you think that the Fed needs to see months of good numbers or do you think that they're looking for actual economic pain as well, that the stakes are higher than they may have been in the past? So I don't think they want pain. I think they expect some pain. I think that they feel as if they have to have some slack created in the job market in order to get inflation under control. How much pain is a matter of considerable debate. There are some people who think the uh, unemployment rate has to rise by two percentage points or more in order to really uh, uh, do a job in terms of lessening inflationary pressures. But Deirdre, this is a weird moment here. This is not to, people try to compare it to the 70s, and I guess mm -hmm. that helps a little bit. But to me, we're still recovering jobs lost in the pandemic, even though we reached the number of jobs that were um, uh, that, that were lost during the pandemic. We've gotten all those back. Um, the economy has grown in the meanwhile, and, and the number of jobs should still be higher. I also think that adding more people will help with the supply problem. So uh, in my uh, take on the economy, I don't see jobs necessarily as being inflationary by themselves. I think it may help solve the inflation problem. To your point, a lot of folks were focused on that labor participation rate. Some said it was the most key takeaway from that report because um, it could lead to a cooling in growth rate. What did you take away from it? 
Yeah, I mean, that was a good sign, but you want to be really careful with this household report. The reason why economists rely more on the other report, the establishment survey, is even though it is revised, uh, it, it's less volatile. So we did have 800,000 people come in to the workforce. That was good. Um, we put 400,000, according to the... Um, uh, according to the household survey, of them to work slightly more than in the uh, payroll survey. The key is this, Deirdre. Okay, so 800,000 came in, 400,000 uh, found jobs, and 300-some-odd thousand, maybe almost 400,000, didn't find jobs. That's okay for a month. The thing we want to watch out for is in the next month's report, did those folks go find work or did they not find work? We do want to operate perhaps with a little bit more slack in the economy. What we don't want to see is people come into the workforce, not find work. Those would be longer term unemployed folks. And you just got to be careful. As, as good as this report was on the establishment side, the unemployment rate did go up by two tenths. And I don't I can't say that we won't look back on this time and say, you know what, this was the beginning of a sharper rise in the unemployment rate. We want to be careful with that. Steve Leisman, thanks as always for the breakdown. I'll talk to you again soon. Meanwhile, Dow down nearly 100 points. And we're going to dive deeper into jobs with the CNBC special tonight, Back to Business. That's 6 p.m. Eastern. You do not want to miss it. As we mentioned, stocks, they initially moved higher in the jobs report. They've since paired gains. My next guest feels confident that we will not retest that June low. And she's been adding risk back into her portfolio. For a closer look at what she's buying, I'm joined by Nancy Tangler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Nancy, Thanks for being with us. Um, why are you so optimistic? What tells you? I mean, I had a very different conversation with Steve Leisman just now and that we're going to have to see more data. It's far from certain at this point. Yeah, well, Deirdre, thanks so much for having me. Um, I, I think that there's a couple of things. We, we began adding risk back into our portfolio in June, and, and we thought that that was a once-in-a-generational opportunity for investors to buy some great companies at, at reduced prices. So we added Lululemon then. We added to some of our cloud names like ServiceNow. Um, we added to some of our cyber names like Palo Alto Networks. And, you know, that worked. And and then we got the pullback, and, and we were cautioning um, – on the air that we thought we would see a pullback because we always, you know, market doesn't go straight up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now what you're seeing is a lot of the elements that need to be in place for the Fed to be finished potentially by the end of this year. Your inflation numbers are dropping. We saw that um, the, the labor force participation rate is increasing, which means that there's going to be more competition for jobs and wages should moderate somewhat. And uh, we, we are seeing really strong earnings. You know, take Broadcom, not all semis are created equal. It's mm. one of the members of our 12 best ideas portfolio. Hawk Tan has been able to deliver in a relentlessly difficult environment. And that's a very different experience than NVIDIA's had. <laughs> so you need to be uh, focused on high quality companies at attractive valuations. Dividend growth is certainly a benefit if you can get it. Okay, Nancy, I've spent a lot of this week focusing on earnings results from enterprise software companies, and it tells a very different story. Even from the names that did well, they beat and raised their guidance. They still talked about these lengthening sales cycles, longer times to get deals done. Um, does that maybe tell investors, though, that there's more pain ahead? They haven't seen the worst of it. Oh, well, undoubtedly, I think we're going to slow further, Deirdre. But I mean, if you look at the early reporters like Microsoft and Amazon, ServiceNow and Google, they they didn't caution. We heard the caution from Salesforce and others. But they were so um, much earlier, Nancy, right? And they, you did see cloud growth decelerate. And now these are all of their customers. 
Yeah, no, you're right. And I think I think you will see um, continued deceleration. But let's harken back to 2019 when we had 3% earnings growth, yet the market went up 35%. So I think some of this is priced in. These stocks have taken it on the chin, except for Palo Alto Networks, uh, on a trailing one-year basis. And I do think that some of it is priced in. That's, that's not an argument that we won't see slower earnings growth. I expect we will. We've been talking about slowing growth for about a, about a year now. And so we had defensed, uh, defensified our <laughs> portfolios a year ago, and then we started adding risk back in in this, this June. We have to be looking forward as investors because our time horizon is the next three to five years and not necessarily the next 20 days. So right. and then- uh, I, I'm pretty confident in these names and these managements have done a really excellent job of keeping margins um, at, at pretty high levels mm-hmm. and even expanding in some cases. So you are seeing opportunity here. I want to get to Lulu because this is another kind of side of the story, right? I think that expectations for retail have been so low. But what Lulu really told us is that the mid to high end customer has or consumer has really held up. Who else does that bode well for? Is it too much of a stretch to say that could bode well for iPhone sales? I don't think so. Um, you know, we've owned Apple for a long time. We started buying it in 2013 and we've we've paired back our position on valuation in the last two years down to more, more than half. Uh, so the company is pretty fully valued uh, for, for sure. And it, there usually isn't a big pop after new product intros. But I think if you're investing for the next three to five years and you get a pullback in Apple, you, you certainly do want to take a look at it. But we were focused on Lulu because we thought we sold our position in Starbucks and we put the the, um, the proceeds into Lulu, mm-hmm. among other places, and actually Chipotle. And um, for us, it was about the high-end consumer for the same reasons um, that that you want to own some of those names like uh, Louis Vuitton, we don't own that. But in an environment like this where the people who are spending are not affected, fortunately, for those companies. Another sector you like, or at least a name, it's in the cybersecurity space. A lot of time we've spent looking at this week also. Uh, that's Palo Alto. Um, it's hard to come across an investor that doesn't like these names. Um, that is reflected in their valuation. When do they start to get expensive? Well, I think you could argue that Palo Alto is pretty expensive at the moment. We look at relative price to sales ratio as our valuation metric, and that's how we purchased it about six years ago. Um, we're, we're not actively adding. We added some recently, just trimmed around the edges or added two around the edges. But we, we have a pretty full position. And uh, as it appreciates, we will take money off the table. That's how you make money in investing. So uh, we, we've enjoyed a really long run, but the secular narrative is still behind this stock and they are best in class in our view. So that's why we own Palo Alto um, over some of the others. Yeah, well, it's been a decent run, at least a good hedge this year. Nancy, thank you so much. Nancy Tangler of Laffer Tangler Investments. Don't forget, CNBC is delivering alpha returns in person on September 28th. The world's top investors will discuss risk, opportunity, and navigating the new market dynamic. You can scan the QR code right there on your screen. You can go to cnbcevents.com to register. Coming up, Meta and Qualcomm are teaming up on virtual reality. But who is getting the better end of the deal and how should investors play it? That's up next. Plus, today's edition of Three Buys and a Bail has a little something for every investor with names across energy, healthcare, and tech. And you may not believe the mega cap tech name our trader is selling today. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Meta and Qualcomm announcing a new virtual reality partnership today. We have every angle of this story covered. Julia Borston is out on the West Coast tracking the impact of this deal on Meta. Christina Partsinevelos is at the Nasdaq with what Qualcomm is getting out of the agreement. And Wedbush's Dan Ives is here with how investors can play the deal. Julia, let's start with you. Well, Deirdre, this is Meta's push to get the resources it needs to build out its AR and VR business, which is, of course, the foundation for its metaverse. Meta and Qualcomm are teaming up to develop custom chipsets for Meta's virtual reality Quest products using Qualcomm's extended reality Snapdragon technology. This is a multi-year deal, but the terms of the deal were not disclosed. Meta and Qualcomm have worked together for years. They power its latest Quest 2 headset along with its Ray-Ban Stories glasses. But it's worth noting that MetaShares are down on this news. Qualcomm is up. These new chipsets will be optimized specifically for those Quest headsets, but the chips will not be exclusive to Meta. So this shows Meta's dependence on Qualcomm. It has not been able to make its own custom chips, despite the attempts of its in-house silicon unit, which launched to reduce its reliance on chip makers and improve its ability to compete with the likes of Apple. This comes ahead of Apple's event next week, where we could get a peek at its first VR headset, which is expected to compete directly with Meta's upcoming Quest Pro that's anticipated to launch in October. Now, after Meta raised the prices of its Quest 2 headsets in July by $100 each, the question is whether Qualcomm can help Meta bring down the cost of these headsets and therefore drive more widespread adoption of VR. Yeah, key question. They're still very expensive. Julia, thank you. Let's turn now to Christina Partsinevelos with Qualcomm's angle on this. Christina. Well, Meta and Qualcomm, like Julia mentioned, they're not strangers. They've been collaborating for the last seven years. But this new long-term chip deal will include, like Julia mentioned, the Snapdragon platform. And that can help with locational tracking, image recognition, and hand tracking tools. But Meta's Qualcomm relationship is becoming even more intertwined, especially since Meta hasn't successfully designed these chips on its own yet, whereas competitors like Google and Apple ship hardware with their own processors. And it's important, I must reiterate this again, 
again that these chips will not be exclusive to Meta hardware, which plays into Qualcomm's pivot away from end-user products like mobile phones and into deep learning and artificial intelligence. CEO Cristiano Amon is trying to turn Qualcomm into a broader provider of semiconductors rather than just the go-to smartphone chip maker. The company actually recently moved into the server segment as well. And it's not its first artificial intelligence extended reality deal. In July, Samsung partnered with Qualcomm on extended reality parts for Samsung's upcoming phone. Microsoft and ByteDance are also working on custom extended reality Qualcomm platforms. But as Zuckerberg said in the announcement very early this morning, they are still in the early stages of the metaverse. But VR headset demand is growing, and that means Qualcomm can get a piece of that pie. That's key. How quickly is it going to grow? Christina, thank you. So what does this partnership mean for investors and for the stocks from here? Let's bring in Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities. Dan, you say that this is, an, this is a step in the right direction for Meta, but everything that we just heard uh, kind of says maybe the opposite. Is this evidence that Meta is still depending on Qualcomm technology and kind of underlining its shortcomings in the silicon space? Yeah, I think it's a step in the right direction, but this is an Everest-like uphill battle for Meta. And especially on the chip side, as Julia talked about, I mean, not being exclusive yeah. is significant. And also it comes, this is contrary to what Apple, Google, and everyone else doing with their own chips. I think it just shows kind of weak hands for Meta and really what's really going to be a battle in terms of this AR, VR headset. Not having that exclusivity, Dan, what does that say about Meta's ambitions in the metaverse? Um, Qualcomm not prepared, I guess, to give them the exclusivity. What do you think that Facebook gave up here? Well, I think for Qualcomm, they're not going to bet on that horse. I mean, because yeah. right now there's a lot more questions than answers. For Meta, inside the lab, the fact that they can't really build their own chips, they had to go to Qualcomm. So I think it shows, in terms of who comes out stronger, Qualcomm definitely comes out looking a lot better. Meta, this just reinforces the street's view that the metaverse strategy, I mean, this is going to be a lot of challenges ahead. Okay, let me ask you about another chip maker. We know NVIDIA is sort of the big play on AI and also metaverse, sort of the leader in the space. Um, it also has a bigger weighting, I noticed, in the Metaverse ETF than Qualcomm, dub, more than double, actually. Is this a loss for NVIDIA? Um, why isn't it developing as quickly? Why doesn't it have this partnership? Yeah, and I think th this is something I think investors would want to have seen NVIDIA get it instead of Qualcomm. And obviously, NVIDIA has had a lot of company-specific issues. But this is going to be just a Game of Thrones battle in terms of AR, VR, and Ultimately, I think what everyone's sort of dreading is that company in Cupertino, when Cook comes out with Apple Glass, we think early 2023, I think that's what really changes the game, and that's their own chips. So right now, everyone's trying to position in terms of the right spot. Qualcomm's doing their part. But ultimately, for Meta, they hear the steps of Cook and Cupertino. Yeah. I mean, there's already so much skepticism that Meta can pull off this massive pivot that the company is trying to do. So, Dan, what is your Metaverse play? Is it separate from Meta and Qualcomm? Is it a name like Roblox or Unity? How are you thinking about the space? I saw Dan, the Metaverse play long term. It's Microsoft. I mean, not just mm -hmm. on Activision, but in terms of where they're going on gaming. And, and I think that's really going to be one, given that stalwart presence, I think that continues to be the tangential metaverse play. And is that also because of the big moves that they're making in gaming? Well, I think it's significant what they're doing in gaming. They have billions are going to be spent here. It also comes down. It's an install-based play. 
And similar to what Nadella did in the cloud, one by one, that's what I believe they're going to do. And when it comes to Metaverse, you look at Microsoft, you look at Apple and the stalwarts, but it comes down to Metaverse, you know, that's going to be for Zuckerberg and team, you know, what I believe a lot of twists and turns ahead. And this doesn't send the signal the street wants yeah. to see. Lots of twists and turns ahead, probably underlines that notion. Uh, Dan Ives, always great to see you. Have a great long weekend. Thank you. you too. Speaking of tech, CNBC will be at Vox Media's Code Conference kicking off on Tuesday. I'll be there. We'll hear from the CEOs of Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and more. That is one that you certainly don't want to miss. And coming up, we are looking at one part of the jobs market expected to see nearly 10 million new openings thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. We will tell you what that is next. Plus, mortgage rates taking a big breather today, a bit of a breather today, but still holding above 6%. We will look at what impact it's having on housing and how long homes are sitting on the market as we had to break. Take a look at stocks. They are taking another leg lower. The Dow had been up by about 370 points at the session high. We are now down, wow, nearly 190 points. The Nasdaq still underperforming, down by about 1%. The exchange is right back after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. All three major indexes now in the red after popping on the so-called Goldilocks jobs report. Let's get back to Bob Pisani with what is pressuring stocks. Bob, I said happy weekend to you. Too early. The Dow is now down more than 200 points. Yeah, the the only headline that's appeared in the last hour is this headline from Gazprom that the, the Nord Stream uh, pipeline will remain shut down. Uh, that is uh, not good news for Europe, certainly. We did see natural gas prices move up on that. Curiously, we didn't really see oil stocks move much. Now, oil stocks are having their best day in a long time uh, today because, uh, well, they've been dramatically oversold this week. So most of the biggest names on the S&P 500 today have all been energy stocks. Now, these all came off of their highs, but they're still up on the day. So obviously, this is not particularly good news for Europe, but this was widely discussed in the street already. I think what you've got here... Deirdre, is very, very thin volume today. In the last two weeks, we've seen about six of the last 12 lightest volume days mm -hmm. of the year. Uh, and this is very typical in the end of August. But particularly now, when there's a dramatic amount of confusion about what the right direction of the market should be, it's sold off. We've down about 7% in the last couple of weeks. But the question is, would that even be close to being enough? Uh, there's not a lot of incentive to get involved right now. And the question today about the jobs report is it was good news generally for the bulls. It was somewhat Goldilocks. We did see uh, most of the numbers move in the right direction for the bulls. But does it change the central narrative for the Fed? And I'm not sure it does. Yeah. Uh, I think we are still expecting most people still 50. Some are in the 75 basis point camp. And I don't think that changed too much. So I think the real issue is the market still believes the Fed's going to keep rates higher for longer, higher into 2023, and they're going to stop that Fed pivot idea, and they have stopped it pretty convincingly. Mm -hmm. So I think here 
be careful about making too much about today's move here. You got very, very light volume. Yeah, maybe some undue optimism at the start there. Uh, Bob Bassani, thanks again. Now let's get to okay. Kate Rogers for CNBC News Update. Kate. Hey, Deirdre, here's what's happening at this hour. Russia's Gazprom has halted all natural gas flows to Europe through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. The stoppage is being blamed on an oil leak and an engine at a compressor station. No timeline is being given for restarting the pipeline. President Biden is asking Congress for a $47 billion emergency spending package. About $22 billion is for COVID relief. Nearly $14 billion would go to aid for Ukraine. There's also money to fight the monkeypox outbreak and pay for disaster relief in Kentucky and other states. Iran's Navy briefly seized two American sea drones in the Red Sea. Iranian sailors released the drones as U.S. warships approached. It's the second seizure of American drones by Iranian forces this week. And on the news, the West Coast heat wave that is expected to bring record temperatures over the holiday weekend. Also, heavy rains expected along the Gulf Coast. That's all tonight at 7 Eastern. Back over to you. Thank you, Kate. And I'll see you back on the West Coast next week. Still <laughs> ahead, it is time for three buys and a bail. The buys are in healthcare and energy. The bail, you're looking at it. It is a tech heavyweight. The company has a big week ahead. <laughs> I don't know if you know yet, but the name and case for why you should bail on this stock, that's straight ahead. Welcome back to The Exchange. A quick check on markets. As you know, about an hour ago, they took a steeper leg lower. We now have the Dow Industrials down more than 200 points. The Nasdaq Composite down about 1% and the S&P 500 down about three quarters of 1%. Let's drill down on a few sectors in today's three buys and a bail. The names in healthcare, energy and tech that you want to own and some that you want to stay clear of. Let's get right to it with Jeff Mills. He is CIO at Bryn Mawr Trust and a CNBC contributor. Um, Jeff, let's get to your first pick. This is relevant right now. It is Chenier. Yeah, very much relevant given the news that we just heard. Uh, listen, this is a stock that I think technically looks pretty good. It recently broke out to new highs. I think it could retest those 150 levels, but I think that would be an opportunity. And in this environment, what do you want? You want stable, visible cash flows. And I think given the nature of their long-term contracts, that's what you have with a stock like Chenier. The stock keeps going up. The PE keeps falling as the fundamentals get better. The stock's trading, I think, at 11 and a half times forward earnings right now. Obviously, some of that has to do with LNG prices going up. That is helping. But I think an important part of the story is the fact that sales volumes are also growing, uh, going up. I think that that's really, really critical. And I think you have more growth to come. They're expanding one of their larger facilities. And then thinking longer term, if you look out to Asia, they're projecting a 40% increase in LNG demand out to 2030. And they've also paid down over a billion dollars of debt mm -hmm. this year. Important for a company like this who tends to carry a high debt load. So I think you take all of those things in combination. It's a pretty good story. It's a good case, despite shares being up nearly 60% this year. Next up, Jeff Merck. Pharmaceutical giant is up 14% this year, and it is outperforming competitors like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. Jeff, you say that this is a solid stock to buy. How come? Yeah, big cap pharma is sort of interesting. You're seeing a divergence there. You've got the likes of Pfizer, J&J &J sort of breaking down, but then you have Merck, Lilly. Those charts look really good. So take, take a chart like Merck and Pfizer, for example. Merck just looks far healthier. You've had this multi-year base in the stock. It's trading above its 200-day moving average, uh, whereas a Pfizer, for example, sort of looks like it's rolling over. And even with the outperformance that we've seen in Merck, uh, it's still below its 10-year average in terms of its P-E ratio. And just from a fundamental perspective, 
Really solid drug pipeline, particularly in oncology. And again, back to sort of profitability, margins, cash position. These are the types of things you want in this market, and I think Merck has it. Finally, uh, Jeff, let's get to Danaher. It snapped a four-day losing streak yesterday, but shares are still down 16% in 2022. You say this name is still a buy? Yeah, I think it is. And it's one of these things where healthcare overall, it's sort of tough market, good charts. And I think you have a lot of good charts in healthcare. So whether it's a name like Cigna, Humana, UNH, but then Danaher, I think also is one of them. You've had really solid support around that 250 level. Again, like you said, still 20% off its highs. So room above it. And it's holding that recent uptrend. So overall, I think the chart looks pretty good. Uh, And just for those that don't know, these guys make drug equipment. So for disease testing, um, vaccine development, a lot of things tied to biotech and R&D spending, uh, but it's it's a lot less risky. And I, I think because of things like gene therapy vaccines, there's big thematic tailwinds for a name like Danaher. They have this large equipment install base with a lot of these companies, but then that drives the sale of their consumables, which are at higher margins. That's about 75% of their sales. And I really just think the key with a stock like this is really great management that's proven they can sort of navigate all kinds of different environments. Uh, and the recurring revenues that's associated with the business I described. So another good one, I think. Okay, so those are your three buys. Here's one, Jeff, that you're saying to bail on, and that's Apple. You say that it will be impacted by the weakening consumer and it will need to revise its earnings expectations as a result. I mean, I feel like people have been saying this about Apple for so many years, that stock just keeps chugging higher. So why now? Yeah, maybe a little controversial here, but I I think we have a chart, number one, just to look at it. And it was trading in this really tight channel from October 2020 up until about the beginning of May of this year. So it broke below it as the market was testing those lows. During the recovery, it ticked almost to the dollar below that old channel and moving lower again. So I think from a technical perspective, it looks to be weakening. Uh, And then again, I do think the case is sort of valuation fundamental driven at almost 25 times forward. It was never really that expensive in the 10 years prior to COVID. And even if earnings expectations don't come down at all, you're talking about 23 times in the out years, 2024, for example. And like you said, I do think that the slowing consumer has to create some, some headwinds here. I think you saw some slack in the labor report today. We're all familiar with what's going on with credit card debt, the biggest year-over-year increase in 20 years. And you're starting to see some warnings relative to hardware sales. We saw it with HP. We saw it with Seagate. Obviously, not completely apples to apples. But remember, iPhone is still 50% of Apple sales. Um, So even if Apple retraces, say, 50% of the current premium it's trading to its 10-year P average, uh, so 25 times to 21 times, that's 15% downside on the stock. Then if earnings compress maybe a little bit more, don't get me wrong. It's a great stock for the long term. We still own it. But if we're thinking about what it's likely to do, say, over the next quarter or two, uh, I think there's downside. 15 percent downside from here, Jeff. What does that mean for the broader markets? Then we love to say, as goes Apple, so do the markets. It makes up such a big part um, of the S&P and the Nasdaq. It is down some nearly 10 percent over the last week alone. You think there's 15 percent more downside from here? I think it's definitely possible. And, you know, I think at the very least, we do test those lows. I, you know, I was looking at some things earlier today, just kind of comparing where we are today versus those June lows. And I think by and large, 
sort of the macro is worse, right? Rates are higher, leading economic indicators are lower. You're seeing one month lows in the S&P 500 tick up. So now 76% of the S&P making one month lows. And it's really been defensive leadership in the market. It's been utilities making new highs. It's been semis making new lows. If you look over in Europe, they're already testing those old lows. So I think by and large, you take all of that in combination. You take the idea that I don't think the P's are going to be supportive going forward. And I made the case with Apple. I think you can make the case with the broad market that you do see those earnings expectations for 2023 coming down. So I think that creates the pressure that I'm well, talking about. That, here. that could be certainly a bearish signal. A lot of folks have been hiding out in Apple this year. Jeff, thank you so much. We should note, too, that the Dow Industrials has drifted off session lows, still down by about 200 points. Still had on the show, more workers joined the labor force last month, bumping up the unemployment rate slightly. Up next, we will get a look at the industry that could create 9 million more jobs over the next decade. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back. If you've been watching, you know that stocks have been taking a major leg lower in the last hour on headlines out of Europe. Gazprom stopped gas supplies to the Nord Stream pipeline. Joining me now with what he is seeing is Jeff Kilberg, Chief Investment Officer at Sanctuary Wealth and a CNBC contributor. Jeff, how much of this are the Gazprom headlines? How much of this is a you know, slow Friday where volumes um, can change the direction of the market easily ahead of a long weekend? You know, Deirdre, I think it's a combination of the two. We certainly are seeing a spike in volume right now. Maybe a lot of people have already hit the cars or hit their planes for the weekend of Labor Day. But nonetheless, it's interesting. This isn't a news flash here. So we kind of knew and anticipated this. But nonetheless, this is part of the process we've seen. Look at the last five trading sessions. Tremendous amount of selling pressure. And sure enough, today, after a Goldilocks jobs number, we did see the market move higher. So it's a combination of people getting a little bit nervous is there further to go? Are we still in this bottom discovery? But nonetheless, I see support here at 3,900 in the S&P 500. But what's fascinating, Deirdre, look at the 10-year note. The 10-year note, which we saw ever in the wake of Mester, you know, Lester, uh, uh, the Fed President Mester, excuse me, talking about being so hawkish, you saw the 10-year note go up to 3.29%. Yeah. Now they're buying treasuries right now. So this is in the wake of obviously selling pressure, but I think we do see some buyers come back in. But you're right, the thin volume overall this week going up to Labor Day is problematic. Yeah, but does it tell us something a little more about sentiment? Um, you know, the market was optimistic after that so-called Goldilocks jobs report. For that to wear off so quickly and so easily, what does that kind of tell us about what could happen next week and into September? I think it's the bipolar nature of the market right now. And to your point, the VIX, the VIX is under 26. So that anxiety that you talk about that we're feeling right now, certainly it is there, but there's no panic out there. We're not seeing the VIX at 40, 50, or like we did in COVID, or even the Great Recession up at 80. So I think this is just part of the process as we're still trying to figure out, is the Fed really going to pull the trigger on 75 basis points? Are they talking the talk or will they actually walk the walk? So right now, I enjoy this as a trader. I think there's a ton of dispersion <laughs> right now. We're putting some money to work on some of the great names that we like, blue chip tangible names. But nonetheless, I think you have to embrace this. Don't run from this volatility, Deirdre. Are you net defensive or net offensive heading into the final? months of the year? You know, we've been net putting on more and more risk the last couple of months. To start the year, we were very uh, modest and prudent, really transitioning out of growth and into value. That's worked out well. We've seen utilities. We've seen even the health sector come back. But at the end of the day right now, 
we're comfortable with the risk being put on here because I see the bottom in the S&P 500 put in June. I know that's a lonely view. It was okay about five or six trading sessions ago, but here people are talking for a new bottom. I don't see that. There's too many forces here, and don't forget this is a midterm election year. So as we get more certainty in the month of September, I think this is going to bode well for the bulls. Not too lonely. Our earlier guest, Nancy Tangler, also said that maybe that was the low. Uh, thanks for being with us. Have a good long weekend. You too, Deirdre. Still ahead, signs cropping up that the widely anticipated housing slowdown is here. We'll dig into the numbers and what they mean for both buyers and sellers. That's next. Before we head to break, also check out the home builder ETF XHB dipping lower with the rest of the market, but still a relative outperformer. It is down nearly 3% over the past week. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The once red hot housing market is showing signs of even more cooling and it's doing so quickly. Diana Oleg joins me now with that story. Diana. Well, Deirdre, of course, it's all because of rising mortgage rates, which crossed over 6% again this week after dropping pretty sharply at the start of August. Higher rates will likely exacerbate what we saw in August. New data from Realtor.com shows that August marked the first month in more than two years in which homes spent more time sitting on the market compared to the previous year. This is the inventory of for sale homes kept rising at a double digit annual pace, up nearly 27 percent. And this happened even though fewer sellers entered the market. In other words, it's stale inventory. Finally, listing prices fell from 449,000 in July to 435,000 in August. In addition, one in five sellers already on the market reduced their prices. A year ago, barely 11% of sellers offered price cuts. And yet another report from Redfin showed at the end of August the average home sold for less than its list price. That's the first time that's happened in almost a year and a half. And of course, now we are in September, which is not quite fall yet, but the start of this lower housing season historically. One positive note, we are getting more data on the rental side, showing rents are starting to moderate as inflation hits consumers and landlords have less pricing power. Deirdre. Yeah, so Diana, as you said, we're heading into a seasonally slower period. How do rising rates and the seasonality set up housing stocks for the rest of the year? It just means it just means even slower. Look, we've seen the home builders falling really dramatically. And over the summer, the most recent earnings reports have shown demand is pulling back, pulling back really dramatically for the home builders. So as we get into this slower season, unless they can off some really big incentives, which I don't see coming down the pike because of still high home builder costs, it's going to be a very slow fall and potentially slower winter. And Diana, how does that play out for some of the real estate, more techie names that we cover on Tech Check, like the Redfins and the Zillows and the Compasses? How does that set them up for the rest of the year? Well, they've already shown losses. Look, it's a slowdown for everyone involved, whether it's the home builders, whether it's the Zillows or the Redfins, as you say, or the Compasses. They are showing big losses as this, you know, corrects. And it is a market correction because, remember, when you compare to what we saw over the last two years, which was dramatic in demand and low supply, that was really not anything normal historically. So now the comps are much harder to even make. Dan Olek, thank you. Even despite that rise in inventory, spiking rates mean affordability remains near 30-year lows, according to my next guest. Joining me now is Andy Walden, VP of Enterprise Research at Black Knight. Uh, We just had Diana run us through everything that's happening. Andy, I guess, could you break down for our audience how this change or doesn't change the dynamic between buying versus renting? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the buy side, it's it's a massive challenge. And Diana, just walk through the numbers. If you look at home affordability out there in the market right now, even with even in the middle of August when interest rates got now got down closer to five percent, we were still in the ten least affordable months uh, in the last thirty years, right? And now that rates are up another half a percent, 
we're now talking about near record lows again in terms of affordability. And so it's pushing a lot of folks over into that rental space. Along with that, they're also seeing prices start to come off their peak. And folks are wondering, is that going to continue to take place? And that's having a psychological effect as well. Right. But rents, the gains there are moderating, but it's still very, very expensive. I think the latest reading was up 10 percent year over year. So what does the first home buyer do in this kind of market? Yeah. And there's in all honesty, there's not a great option, right? Because if you look at the, the payments being made or the payments needed to afford the average home purchase, they're up 50% from the beginning of the year. You're talking $650 per month more just to buy the average home over there on the buy side of the house. So even with rents up, they still look relatively attractive compared to the increasing cost mm -hmm. to buy a home out there in the market over the last eight months. You know, it was kind of shocking. I was talking to someone earlier this week who said that uh, their son just had to sign an apartment in New York City, put down two months, needed a guarantor as well, a huge deposit. Um, it seems out of step with what we're seeing in terms of return to work, not expected to pick up significantly even after Labor Day. What is the catalyst that sort of gets rents more in line with what's happening in cities? You know, New York City is a really interesting anomaly. When you look at what's going on in terms of prices, in terms of back to the, back to the office uh, type of activity, New York is really an outlier. You're not seeing that same thing in the West Coast markets. Yeah. They're seeing prices correct. Prices are holding strong in that New York uh, New York specific area because of that that return to work type of activity. So again, I think there's just a new balance between renting and, and home ownership. Both are getting significantly more expensive. I think as you see rates move, that that dynamic between the two is going to shift, and there's going to be this constant mathematical equation going on in in folks' mind of is rental uh, more affordable than housing, and, and does it make sense right now? Does does gaining a little bit of pay down in my mortgage debt each month outweigh the potential risk of price corrections that Diana was just talking about. So a lot of different dynamics at play right now for folks looking at renting and buying, and neither one of them are, are, are overly attractive right now. Yeah, not a great situation to be in if you're looking to rent or buy. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for being with us. Have a good long weekend. Andy Walden. You bet. Meanwhile, clean energy has been a hot investing trend, but over the next decade, it is also poised to become a hot jobs trend. That is after this quick break. And as we head to break, take another quick check on markets. It's been volatile today. They are at fresh session lows with the Dow now down more than 260 points. Kohl's, though, it is climbing as Reuters reports that Oak Street real estate capital has made an offer to acquire as much as $2 billion worth of the property of property from the company, which it would then lease back to the retailer. We've reached out to both companies and we will let you know when we hear back that stock up more than 4%. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Alternative energy has been a hot topic when it comes to investing, but what about when it comes to jobs? Kate Rogers has a look at the wide range of opportunities in that rapidly growing industry. Kate? Hey, Deirdre. Well, from manufacturing to tech startups, companies in clean energy and more broadly the climate space are gearing up for a jobs boom. The Inflation Reduction Act could spur the creation of 9 million jobs in the next decade between public and private investment, according to a study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst commissioned by the Blue-Green Alliance. Recruiters like Brendan Anderson are helping workers make the leap from other industries into climate at companies in energy and power, transportation and agriculture, mostly working on software. What we're trying to do is find those profiles of people that might be working in big tech or any kind of tech firm and want more fulfillment in their work and trying to introduce them to the, uh, the opportunity to move into climate. 
Leave Grid is working on solutions to deploy electric vehicles on the electric grid. More EVs on the road tied to the act means more business for that company. It's grown from six to 60 employees over the last two years and is looking for workers to fill roles from software engineers to machine learning and even marketing. We're looking for the same skill sets that that you would have at any other software company, enterprise software company. But uniquely, we really look for people who have a deep, deep passion for climate. I want to do something really impactful with their work. So really what we've learned is there are jobs uh, out there for anyone in the space, software manufacturing, installation, more traditional roles like accounting, HR, and marketing, and more. Deirdre, so a lot to come. Thanks so much, Kate. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.